We begin tonight's news with this story of destructive fires. We have this year seen and heard enough of what fire can do. With fires in every direction, burning night and day, our lot cannot be said to have been enviable. The great heat, lasting for days and weeks with scarcely any intermission, which we have had to put up with lately, has been beyond measure, but still we live. We cannot help hearing of the distressing news from Morambine, where the fiery element has done some sad work amongst the poor farmers in that locality. Those least able to bear it appear to have suffered most. In one or two instances, the fire has been completely ruinous, while nearly everyone near Morambine has shared in the disaster. This story from the Eastern District's Chronicle in York, Western Australia. For Friday, February 27, 1880, this was the news. This Was The News is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. Clipped from papers across Australia, I'm Broderick Matthews with the news from yesterday, here today. Today's episode of This Was The News is coming from the year 1880, and on February 27, the news of the mining sector dominated papers across the country, along with the shipping reports, with ships travelling port to port. In the Melbourne papers, there was plenty of news about the upcoming election. So important was the vote that it had been declared a public holiday by most, except the bankers who forgot to lodge the paperwork for their bank holiday. Meanwhile, in Wollongong, we turn the page of the Illawarra Mercury to a proposal for some more advanced technology. A gentleman in this town has suggested to us that a movement should be made to have our main streets lighted with suitable kerosene lamps during dark nights, especially in winter. The idea being an excellent one, we have much pleasure in giving it forth in our columns in the hope that it may be taken up and carried into effect. Even the main thoroughfares of the town present a most dismal appearance on moonless nights. So much is this the fact that not unfrequently parties going in opposite directions are in danger of colliding. Of course we're not talking about cars colliding as the article goes on to say. The inconvenience is at its greatest on dark Sunday evenings when the streets are full of people walking to and fro with scarcely a glimmer of light to shoo or cheer their way, the only beacons to indicate the direction in which the streets run being those of the public houses. Sounds like the ideal situation for a pub crawl, really. Anyway, the article goes on, as we have pointed out frequently, it is a disgrace as well as a drawback to Wollongong that it is not lighted with gas. Pending the establishment of a gas company here, however, it would be a great advantage to the town to have its main streets lighted by means of kerosene or other more suitable oil, if such be obtainable. The expense of fairly lighting a few of our streets in that way would be very moderate, whereas the utility would be great. The matter should certainly be taken in hand by our borough council before another winter with its mud, mire and gloom sets in. It would be nothing new in the way of lighting streets should those of Wollongong be illuminated by means of kerosene lamps. Other towns in this colony, 
being the colony of New South Wales at the time, have had their main streets lighted by kerosene for some years, and even at the present time, some such instances exist. It is only very recently that the town of Goulburn has been supplied with gas, but for years previously, the streets there were fairly lighted by kerosene. Yes, that's right, Wollongong trying to catch up with Goulburn. Meanwhile, let's turn to some regional news now with this piece from the Bunyip in Gawler, South Australia. A meeting of the Board of Advice was held at the Model School on February 23rd to investigate a charge against Mr Donnell, one of the teachers, of using irregular and excessive punishment. The whole of the school board were present. After some evidence had been taken, the board found that two of the education regulations had been violated and that they thought the punishment inflicted by Mr Donnell had been too severe. The head teacher, Mr Burton, was requested to see that the regulations in question were strictly adhered to in the future and also to forbid the use of any instrument for personal correction other than the ordinary school cane. You can't be too excessive, but you can use the cane still. That's perfectly fine. Meanwhile, this crazy story comes from uh, Tumut and published in the uh, Tumut Adelonga Murrumbidgee District Advertiser out of New South Wales. A young man who appears to be desirous of obtaining for himself an unenviable notoriety repaired the other evening to the residence of a married woman in the absence of her husband. Shock horror and in this case used language to her and her mother, which you must not print. Not satisfied with so doing, the paper is informed that he rode against the door of the house, battered it down, rode his horse into the house, breaking and damaging the furniture, and indulging in other little pleasantries of a like nature. He wound up by destroying several panels of paling fence around the garden, giving free access to stock grazing close by. Having exhausted himself by the last proceeding, this young lord of creation took himself off. Some people are very long-suffering and may endure many things rather than enter a witness box, but I rather think the above matter will come before our local bench. Yes, what a story, and just goes to show that hoons were around even before cars became a thing, hooning around on their horses instead. Let's take a short break from the news with these advertisements. Liver complaint and all the numerous symptoms that result from an unhealthy condition of the liver and stomach can be fixed by Green's August Flour. Green's August Flour now has the largest sale of any preparation in the world. It corrects all impurities of the stomach, acts gently on the bowels, cures indigestion, stirs up the liver and is just what our citizens need for dizziness of the head, palpitation of the heart and the result of indigestion and dyspepsia. Three doses will relieve you. Try it. Sample bottles to try for sixpence. Large size, three shillings and sixpence. Sold by all chemists and dealers in medicines. Wholesale by Elliot Brothers, Sydney. Some advice to mothers. Are you broken in your rest by a sick child suffering with the pain of cutting teeth? Go at once to a chemist and get a bottle of Mrs Winslow's soothing syrup. It will relieve the poor sufferer immediately. 
It is perfectly harmless and pleasant to taste. It produces natural, quiet sleep by relieving the child from pain. And the little cherub awakes as bright as a button. It soothes the child. It softens the gums, allays all pain, relieves wind, regulates the bowels, and is the best known remedy for dysentery and diarrhea, whether arising from teething or other causes. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup is sold by medicine dealers everywhere. Manufactured at 493 Oxford Street, London. Back to the news now for Friday 27 February 1880 and this rather gender-biased piece from the Armadale Express and New England General Advertiser in New South Wales. The arrival of Miss Whiteside here to lecture upon cookery is an event that should be taken advantage of by many an inexperienced wife and by every unmarried girl who can possibly spare time to attend those lectures. Man is essentially a cooking animal, and the least he can do is to fulfil his destiny by seeing that, if he himself does not wield the gridiron and the stewpan, his wife and daughters shall at least be able to do so properly. I love the implication there of man is a primitive cooking animal, but he's not going to do it, so his wife or his daughter needs to do it for him instead. Very interesting take on the subject. Continues on, delving into uh, racial stereotypes too. The Latin races, and especially the French, study cookery as a necessity. While the Teuton people, and especially the lower and middle classes of the English, neglect it as a luxury. Although no one has a better appreciation of a good dinner than the average Englishman. Of late years, it has become to be generally understood amongst us that good cookery means good health comfort and wealth. It has been shown over and over again that of what the ordinary English wife throws away, the French woman will make a savoury dish. And if this be true of England, where meat is at almost famine prices and nearly every necessity of life is high-priced, how much more so is it true with us in the colonies, this land of plenty? So even though Australia is the land of plenty, we still have to make the most of food that we have. The article continues on. The evil of bad and wasteful cookery is especially prevalent here amongst those who can least afford to suffer under it. The clerks and artisans and others whose salary ranges from £2 to £3 a week, which in today's money would be almost $500 a week. So the clerks and artisans have to depend on the wife or the general servant for the skillful preparation of breakfast, dinner, etc., It is not too much to say that not one Australian girl in a dozen, when she marries, knows the principles of domestic economy, and that not one girl in a hundred who goes to service knows even the rudimentary principles of cooking. That's right, when you marry, you have to know the domestic economy. It's expected as a wife in this day and age. I'll continue. In the higher classes, the ignorance is deeper, but here the girls are directly to blame for not availing themselves of the opportunity they have in a well-ordered home to learn how things are done. Yes, let's just sidestep the fact that the men could also uh, do that themselves and avail them of uh, this knowledge. Anyway, Miss Whiteside intends to form cookery classes in Sydney, and we hope that they will be attended by crowds of sweet girl graduates, anxious to conquer the art which has been said to be the key to an Englishman's affection. That's right, 
The way to win a man in 1880 is definitely through his stomach. Let's turn the page now and delve into sports news. This piece from the South Australian Advertiser, entitled For the Benefit of Professor Bastard. Now, before I start reading this article, I might just clarify who Professor Bastard is, because what a name it is there. Yes, Professor Bastard, Thomas Bastard, or also known as Cockney Tom, was appointed swimming master to the government model schools in 24th of March 1874, and it was probably the first such appointment in South Australia. Bastard first turned up in Adelaide in 1853, where he opened Turkish baths sometime later and taught swimming. His pupils for swimming included the family of the governor, Sir James Ferguson. In 1864, he started swimming competitions, probably in the city bars, which were opened at the end of 1861. He was known as the professor and was universally liked for his affable and genial manners. A genuine cockney, according to the reference I've found. But uh, this article talks about uh, the return of Professor Bastard. It's on Thursday evening, February 26, a complimentary benefit was given to Professor Bastard at the City Baths under the auspices of the South Australian Swimming Club. There was only a fair attendance, which is a matter for regret as a consideration for what the Professor has done to advance the art of swimming. The matches passed off successfully, and although there was not a great number of competitors in any of the events, the contests were very interesting on the whole. Professor Cabell kindly permitted his two youngest children, Madeline and Charlie, to give an exhibition of their skill, in addition to the ordinary races. Mr Bastard did some sensational dives, and Mr Reginald Colley also illustrated the fact that long diving may be made in shallow water with safety. Now the following is the list of events. In the match between R. Cowham and Seymour, Cowham won easily, his stroke being much admired. In the tub race, Manson came first with Miller second and Jay Angus third. Now, this was a very amusing race with Angus upsetting his tub several times. There's no picture in this article, but I presume a tub race is exactly as it sounds, people paddling in a bathtub. Meanwhile, in other results, the long swim underwater was taken out by E. Watson with a long swim of 55 yards, and the riding floating pig uh, was uh, won by Dudley, the only one who succeeded in riding the pig. Now, what on earth is riding the pig? Your guess is as good as mine here, folks. If you know, pop me an email uh, so I can update our listeners. In other sports news, this report on cricket comes from the West Australian in Perth. The Metropolitan Cricket Club have displayed an amount of common sense that we hope will prove contagious. At the annual meeting held last week, the following resolution emanating from the captain, Mr James, was unanimously adopted. The resolution was that the cricket season begin each year in March 15 and close May 31, to be resumed September 1 and continued until the warm weather renders the exercise too oppressive. Heretofore, the game has usually been played under a blazing, blistering sun, when the very thought of physical exercise sent all but the most enthusiastic cricketer into a profuse perspiration. Kind of makes sense, really. Why would you go and stand out in a field uh, in the middle of summer? So they're trying to play cricket outside of that. The article continues on with some very colourful language. 
The appearance of the wretched players after four or five hours' exposure to the relentless rays of a blazing sun with the heat at 90 degrees in the shade was suggestive of spontaneous combustion. There was a suspiciously bacchanalian look about their ruby visages, of which some of them seemed half ashamed. We have seen them depart from the tented field with nasal promontories sufficiently lurid to justify calling out the fire brigade. What a sentence! Nasal promontories sufficiently lurid to justify calling out the fire brigade. And yes, that's right, ruby proboscis that remind us of Lord Kelly's face. Pray, my lord, said Foot to Kelly, come and look over my garden wall. My cucumbers are very backward. Again, folks, I cannot work out what that sentence means. I've found numerous references to the Lord Kelly joke, but I just can't find the origin of why it's funny. If you know, send me an email. The article continues on. Under the new rule, the noble game may be practised without submitting the players to such martyrdom, and when it may be reasonably expected that outdoors sports will be really enjoyable. The example of the Metropolitan Cricketers had better be followed by other clubs. And look, it kind of makes sense back in 1880. Without sunscreen or proper coverings and air-conditioned change rooms, it was probably a pretty horrible time to be out in the field. Let's take a short break and uh, have another couple of advertisements. of the jokes related by W.T. and although as well worn as the lights and shadows may be new to some. The joke is that he only knew three kinds of colonial wine. One that gave a headache, another the bellyache and a third that did both. That evidently referred to a long time ago before Thomas Hardy came to the front with his well-made, well-kept and well-matured wines. Such may now be obtained at the wine bars and restaurant and many of the best hotels in Adelaide City and are fast becoming the national and rational beverage of the people. In consequence of spurious imitations of Lee and Perrin's sauce, which are calculated to deceive the public, Lee and Perrin's have adopted a new label bearing their signature, which is placed on every bottle of Worcestershire sauce and without which signature none is genuine. Ask for Liam Perrin's Worcestershire sauce, sold by grocers and oilmen throughout the world. Today's final story is out of France, but it was reported on this day in the Armadale Express and New England General Advertiser in New South Wales and is headlined Death by Decapitation. Yes, folks, this article's a little bit grisly. The following are interesting particulars of the execution at Beauvais of an atrocious murderer named Brunier. The moment that the guillotine had done its work, the body and head were placed in a basket and were taken to the cemetery, where doctors Evrard, Lesage, Chevalier, Les Guillon, Rochou and Decaine were present. Dr Evrard had asked for and obtained the body of the felon for experiments, which were followed with deep interest, for, besides their purely scientific character, they related to a question so often discussed, does life survive decapitation? Yes, I uh, hate to think of the ethics clearance of these experiments. You'll see why as we go on. 
Five minutes had elapsed from the moment when the head was separated from the trunk, and it was placed on a stone in the open air in front of the little chapel of the cemetery. Comparatively little blood had flowed, and some drops were running from the carotid artery. Although the neck was very short, the cutting had been very clean. Pinched, stuck with needles, submitted to the most painful experiments, the head never even moved. The face remained unaltered, not a muscle quivered. The left ear was completely calcined in the flame of a candle, without obtaining the smallest appearance of sensibility. Yes, I totally agree with that. The best way to test if it can hear is just to put a flame to the entire left ear. The doctors then divided the skirt of the head into four parts, and using hammer, scalpel and the saw, they took away the upper portion of the skull and withdrew the brain. This occupied ten minutes. Immediately, on being submitted to electric battery, the remains of the head at once displayed nervous contractions. The teeth chattered, the mouth shut, the eye and the cheek made those grimaces which are usually observed in sleeping people when tickled with a feather. Yes, that's right, folks. If you stimulate your muscles with electric battery, you look just like you're being tickled with a feather. How lovely. With the body, the same result was obtained. It was absolutely without feeling. It was opened, the heart, lungs and intestines were removed, and then, on being placed in contact with the electric battery, the arms and legs instantly moved. At this point, 40 minutes had elapsed from the time of execution. The conclusion of the doctors is that the movements observed in the bodies of persons guillotined on being subjected to the action of electricity are absolutely mechanical and display neither any remainder of life nor of sensation. Well, that's certainly good to hear, considering all the pain that they submitted that body to. The experiment will be the subject of a memoir, which will shortly be presented to the Academy of Medicine by Dr. Evrard, and in which he will demonstrate that death by decapitation is instantaneous. Yes, that's right, the French trying to prove that the guillotine is a humane way to kill people. That's the end of the news, which now brings the weather. From the York Peninsula Advertiser in South Australia, the weather in Port Wakefield has been damp and threatening but without much rain. The people are mostly gone to the Adelaide show and those who remain here feel or seem to be drowsy, perhaps from the weather. Meanwhile, in Bendigo, Victoria, the Bendigo Advertiser says that copious rains have fallen all over the colony and the creeks and rivers have received a fresh supply. The farmers are jubilant, but the rain has come too late to be of any benefit to the vignerons, and it will be a fortunate circumstance if it does not injure the grapes to some extent. The paper is closed and that's the end of the news. For February 27, 1880, this was the news. This Was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from museopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. 
thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, 12 March. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was the news. Thank you.